we're jumping back in, John chapter 3. We're going to finish off that chapter today. And I think as we jump in, uh, we'll, we're going to be talking about surrender today. And I don't know if you've had to ever really surrender something that was really precious to you. Uh, maybe it was uh, changing your food diet or maybe getting rid of uh, all the drug use, you know, uh, or, or, or the cigarettes or, or nicotine or whatever it was. Uh, sometimes what we have to surrender can be somewhat inconsequential. Other times it can be really meaningful. But no matter what, I really think surrendering, no matter how in, insignificant it seems, it can be hard. It can be hard. I, um, <clears throat> in high school, I, uh, me and my brother were watching, I think it's QVC. Is that the shopping network? Yeah, yeah. Late at night, so two things, right? Watching the shopping network and late at night, never too good decision-making scenarios. Uh, we were sitting there, and what came on was this knife set. It was 700 knives, and, and so all these different pocket knives. And I'm somewhat of an entrepreneur, so I look at that. I'm like, we're going to go in those for like 15 cents a piece. We could, we could sell those for $5. So we start planning all this, like, this business of selling knives. Um, on top of all of it, they came with uh, a British Special Force knife. It came with a, uh, a replica. And if you didn't know I was a dork at this point, like, either you're going to be like, wow, I didn't know that, or you're, 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 you're going to be confirmed in your suspicion. But there was this replica. Uh, 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 what is it? Richard, the, the, the great sword. Um, and so it had, a, it had a little, like, thing that it held, it was held by, on to go on the wall, a mount. And it was an amazing sword. You, he says, not for real use. But, you know, once I got it, of course I used it. And so, like, I had this sword. that also came with this last knife, which was a, a Bowie knife, a 12-inch Bowie knife that had these spikes by the, uh, I don't know what they call it, you know, the handle. And then at the very bottom, it had this huge spike. And I'm thinking, like, this is great for home defense, right? So I, I have all these knives. And, you know, throughout my life, I started realizing, right, that we had these piles and boxes of knives that we actually never sold. We never once sold to anybody. I think I gave them away as gifts every so often. But there were, like, hundreds of knives. And uh, eventually, I just got rid of them. You know, for whatever reason. Maybe my mom got rid of them. I don't know. But I was, the, the, my supply dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. Uh, and especially getting married, my wife challenged me regularly to get rid of junk. Um, she's a minimalist. I'm by default as well. And so we would get rid of some stuff. And uh, the last thing I had was that 12-inch Bowie knife. I had used it under my pillow for many years as, 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 as like quasi, like, I'm going to use this in home defense, which I don't think was a smart idea because I come out with a knife. I don't know if the person has a gun. Like, I'm, I'm going to lose that battle. Um, so... I had this big Bowie knife, and I, I, I held on to it, and my wife kept asking me, why do you have this? And finally, I relented, and uh, I eventually gave that away. But it was incredibly hard to surrender that, uh, to give that up. It was pretty insignificant in, in my life, but it was really difficult. But I find that when you surrender, uh, it improved my marriage because she, she you know, she, it always lightens my wife's, my wife's heart when I get rid of stuff. Old t-shirts, car parts that are laying around the garage. But it, it helps your relationships. It, it can both benefit you and those around you when you surrender. See, I believe embracing Jesus has a benefit as well. It benefits us for eternal life. It gives us a new life. We move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. 
But it also benefits those, as we live to honor God, it benefits those around us in the same way. But it all starts with surrender. Following Jesus starts with surrender. So today we're going to be looking at John chapter 3, verse 22. And we're going to see embracing Jesus means surrendering our ways. Surrendering that which maybe gives us our identity. Embracing Jesus means surrendering our race. Check out chapter 3, John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Uh, interesting. I don't think we often think of Jesus as baptizing people, but more likely it was his disciples baptizing, as we'll read in the story a little bit more. John also was baptizing at Ion near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Uh, I think the apostle John could have summarized this a whole lot quicker. I think it's interesting that he actually leaves in some of these details. And I think the reason why it's interesting is because adding these extra pieces of information it affirms that these are real events taking place in real places. Uh, he's just, by chance, just saying, these aren't made up things. Sometimes people approach the Bible as uh, just a story. For sure, it's, it's written as a story. It's written in a narrative setting. But it's based off of historical and commonly known places. And this is why John's referring it to. So his readers would know exactly where he was talking about. Now, I don't know how many of us know exactly where John is talking about. Uh, most of us probably don't. But that's okay. But what it should affirm is that these are real events taking place in real time, real people. I think it also demonstrates the trustworthiness of God's word. Because as we read God's word, we see that, that it's true. I, and I've actually uh, you know, studied quite a bit on you know, archaeology. I'm not an archaeologist, but... We've studied some of this, and, and what's interesting is we see how sometimes throughout history, people have actually kind of challenged God's word on, um, or making, making fun of it for not being specific or knowing where certain things are. Like, there's cities that the Bible talks about that people laugh and say, these don't exist. We've never discovered these. Um, but you know what's funny is time after time throughout history, the Bible is shown to be true. And trustworthy. And I think that's important as we read God's word and, and we're in, in, in the Gospel of John that these aren't just stories, they're true. I think it's hard for us to, to, to understand or really trust something that we can't see. Or maybe it's something that we just don't fully understand ourselves. But I think with God, it's something similar to maybe the way we experience gravity. Uh, no one would deny gravity, but I don't know anybody in this room that fully understands it either. In fact, the more I watch, you know, movies and other things, and maybe that's where I learn most of my science, but the more I watch stuff or understand things, like, I, I don't quite understand how it all works, but it doesn't mean I don't believe in it. And I think sometimes we approach God expecting that we might understand him fully or his ways, but his ways are higher than ours. So we've Come to John chapter 3. Uh, so John has already set up uh, what's going on. He's put, up, put forth the setting. Uh, we, we see the occasion that's happening. Uh, so Jesus is baptizing. They're at this place where their water's plentiful. 
But what's the tension? What's going to happen? What's going to make this a, an actual episode in Jesus' gospel? Let's look at verse 25. As now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. It doesn't mean that like in a derogatory way, so don't worry. Uh, he's just saying that not, he's not specifically saying who it is, but it's just a, a Jewish person who is actually arguing with John's disciples. Verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So here's the situation. Uh, Jesus is now baptizing people, like John bore witness to Jesus. Jesus was baptized by John, and now he's across the Jordan baptizing not just some people, but more people than John. And I'm sure everyone's looking at John, and this is exactly what's happening, and they're kind of pointing out saying, you know, John, aren't you the Baptist? Like, isn't that, isn't that who you are? You're the dude that baptizes people, right? Like, that's why we're with you. Because that's what we do, right? Like, that's who we are. They all thought that that's who I, that what, this is what identified John. See, what's at stake with this question to John is they're asking about his identity. They're saying, who are you if you're not the one who baptizes? See, we tend to put much of our identity in what we do when who we are should really inform what we do. We, we say what we do comes from who we are. See, as Christians, we have been clearly identified with Jesus. We've been given new life. We've been given eternal life. And from that, that should be what's informing what we do. But often what we do becomes our identity. And John doesn't agree with it. I love how in the gospel, we are declared righteous. We're declared right before God, that, that we have right standing, we have forgiveness through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But what's funny about that is it doesn't always mean that we live righteously, but it is a calling for us to live that way. That we're not perfect, but through the gospel, we are reconciled to God, but we're called to a higher standard, we're called to the family of God, and we're called to a certain way of living. See, we should be wrapping ourselves in this identity. And I believe this is how we experience transformation. Not through our own effort, but by abiding in who Christ has made us. That we are new creations. That Jesus is making us new. That doesn't mean we don't struggle and we don't have difficulty. But that in Jesus we are a new person. Experiencing new life. I think this this wrapping ourselves in an identity that Jesus has given us and rather than the, the identity we have formed around what we do, even our professions, this can be the hardest thing to surrender. The hardest thing to surrender is who we think we've become because the whole world is looking to us by our outward appearance and saying, who are you? What do you do? But in Christ, we're actually informed who we actually are and we're to walk in that way. See, this world wants to identify us completely by what we do. And it's easy to wrap ourselves and get trapped in that mindset and allow them to define us. But in receiving the gospel, 
God is asking us to risk losing who we are or who we've perceived ourselves to be, who we've kind of settled on being so we can make it through this life. And he's asking us to risk that and place our identity in himself. Look how John responds to this risk of losing his identity to Jesus. Because that's what they're asking. It's like, who's this? You said he's, you know, you pointed to Jesus. You said he's the, he's the man. Now you're going to risk your losing who you are to him. Verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Humility. John is humble. He's demonstrating humility. Verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The fact that Jesus is stepping in and taking over, John is satisfied. He's complete. Verse 30, I love this. He must increase, but I must decrease. John wants to decrease so that Jesus might be lifted high. So that Jesus might be who God has made him to be. You know, I do a a lot of weddings, and I didn't do a recent wedding. I just went to a wedding last night. They didn't have any, uh, you know, grooms or maids of honor. But I've done a lot of weddings, and I've never once been in a situation where the groom and bride are there and the best man steps in and marries the bride, right? Um, I, I, I haven't been there. Maybe I just haven't done enough weddings, but that doesn't seem to be the way it should go, right? We say something's wrong if we're at the altar or whatever you want to call it and we're there and somebody steps in and goes, I'll marry the bride or, or someone says, I'll marry the groom. Either way, something has gone awry. I don't think it's because I haven't done enough weddings, Because in the end, it's all about the bride and the groom. That's what we're gathered there. To celebrate, to see, and to to see them honor God in marriage. Now, I'll I'll give you some advice. If you're part of a wedding, and I I do enough weddings to see this. uh, If you're part of a wedding, your job is to make sure it's about the bride and groom. Well, you know, of course, like, you know, Jesus, you know, bride and groom, that's important. But, like, the actual, like, who matters, you know, emotionally... Who matters if they get the right pictures, if everything's going well? It matters if they're enjoying it, right? And I've seen too many people in bridal parties, right, make it about themselves. And it's the most awkward thing when someone's like, do I look good? Am I okay? I'm like, you don't matter. You are on the edge. You know, I'm in the middle more, so I matter, but not you, right? No, um, but whoever's right, the bride and groom. Are, and that's maybe some vanity, I don't know. But the, the bride and groom are what matters. But too many people worry about themselves, and they're arrogant, and they try to step in, and they make it about them. See, being a good groomsman or a bridesmaid takes humility. It's an essential attribute to really celebrate alongside the bride and groom. See, to, humility is an essential attribute for us as believers in Jesus as well. I believe it's one of the, it may be the single hallmark of what it, what it means to surrender control. That attribute of Jesus, it's of someone who's surrendered control, someone who has humility, who knows their place. I think humility is 
hard to come by, but when you do receive it, it often leaves scars. It leaves scars. We can see that in Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, we're encouraged as believers to have this mindset like Jesus and in humility. But see how Paul, the apostle, argues it. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is whose, is yours in Christ Jesus. And what did Christ Jesus have? What was this mindset? Verse 6, who though he in, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, even death on a cross. This is Jesus' position. So humility is both not just a mindset, but it's a position. It's a lowering, right? Um, we don't fully quite understand Philippians 2. And if anyone says they fully understand it, like, wow, good for you. Because that's really complicated stuff. But essentially what he's saying is Jesus had a high position, but he submitted himself to a low position. Get that. He actually says in the argument that he became the form of a man, right? That he took human form. That this was him lowering. We think we're all high and mighty because we're like hot stuff, right? And Jesus had to actually be humble to even become a man, right? We're not that great. We're not that great. And then what happens in the end? The scars. The scars of humility. The lowering oneself. He endured death. Endured death. Not just death on any, like with anything like, you know, a firing squad or getting your head chopped off. Maybe those are pretty graphic. But when we say he died on the cross, there's no more graphic, insane way to die than on a cross. It's absolute torture. Absolute torture. And that's the kind of death he died. Not by accident, but on intention. See, humility... I would say admitting when you're wrong. I think that's one of the greatest ways I think someone can demonstrate humility is just being able to admit they're wrong. Humility is the only way to have healthy relationships. Humility adds something to our relationships. I think it's true in marriage. Uh, I, I've seen it true in marriage. Um, I think a lot of people, they, a lot of marriages end because the lack of humility, togetherness. I think it's true in friendship. And I think it's essential in community in the church. Without humility, I don't think we can really love one another. See, when we're humbly submitting ourselves, I believe that's the necessary step to walk in community with one another. That we might be, that those outside would see our love and know that we are his disciples. John 13. This comes through humbly submitting ourselves to one another. It allows us to love one another. So what is humility? Well, there's an old country song um, that I just, I, I, I love. It's one of my favorite. It's hard to be humble. It's hard to be humble. Um, it, it's funny because of how proud he actually is. He says, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be one of a man, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. 
Um, I didn't sing it because, like, I think, you know, it would be, be awkward. I would play it, but I, every time I play it for people, they don't laugh. And I don't know if you've ever been there when, like, you think something's really funny, but no one else does. Um, so, sorry. But that kind of gets at it, right? And clearly this guy's not actually being humble. He's actually celebrating himself. I think that's sometimes how we come at humility. But humility is the opposite of smug arrogance. But it's hard to really sometimes differentiate, maybe in other people as we see them, the difference between smug arrogance and maybe confidence. It's, a, it's tough to delineate. I think it's hard because we're viewing things from the outside. There's a fine, and I believe there actually is a fine line between them. But what comes down between confidence, which it's good to have confidence, not in yourself necessarily, but just, you know, confidence. You carry yourself well. There's nothing wrong with that. But the difference between that and smug arrogance really comes down to a matter of the heart. It's something that we can't tell someone else. In fact, I see it all the time. And, and I feel like as I've gotten older, like, I, I'm, I'm starting to realize, like, why being older sucks. Because you see younger people and you're like, oh, they're just, they're arrogant, right? They're arrogant. Um, and now I'm better understanding how everyone's seen me for my whole life. You know, oh, okay, that's, that's why I look that way. They responded to me that way. But it's actually an issue of the heart. I've met people who seem to be smug and arrogant, but I've come to find that they're actually quite humble people. But how do we deal with that? What do we, what do, we do for each other? Well, I think it's, it's an individual a litmus test that you have to ask yourself whether you're humble. I think the question comes down to, and I've already said it a little bit earlier, can I be wrong? Especially when it comes to relationships. And maybe I'm simplifying it today, and there's, there's other ways we can talk about this, but I think when you come down to a litmus test for in relationships, are you being confident, walking in confidence, or you're having smug arrogance, you have to ask yourself, can you be wrong? How do you respond when you're wrong? Humility can admit when you're wrong. And if you can't admit you're wrong in anything, then you have a big pride problem. You're going to struggle. It will haunt all of your relationships. It will put you at odds with even God himself. That smug arrogance, not being able to be wrong. Because when we think about the key indicator of whether someone's walking in humility, it's when they can own up to their own mistakes. When they can see who they are and see where they've messed up and own up to it. It's amazing when you see someone do that. When they're able actually to say that they're wrong. Um, maybe the hardest thing I've actually done in my life. And maybe I'm up here talking about myself more. Because I've realized that for me. Like if I'm being arrogant, I'm not able to say when I'm wrong. And see, we have to remember especially when it comes down to, to who God is and who we are, that sin is trusting and, and acting on our own thoughts and emotions more than on God's truth, who God has revealed himself to be. See, true humility is walking underneath God's way. It's when God says something, we submit ourselves and walk in it. This is not about a one-time surrender. I think sometimes we approach our life with God as, as okay, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm wrong. The way I've been living is wrong. Um, I'm going to admit that to you. I'm going to maybe say a prayer, and then we're going to move on with our life now, God, right? Like, I've got that, that box checked. But the life with God, the new life, is not a one-time surrender. Rather, it's a life of faith with an ongoing posture of surrender to God. 
It's an open hand to him. Surrendering is not just admitting you're wrong and what you've been doing wrong with God. It's also putting your faith in something. You can reject a certain way you've been living, but you have to have an object for your faith. Here John continues by professing this faith in who the object of our faith should be in Jesus. Look at verse 31. John continues, he says, Who comes from above is above all. Um, we know who's ab- from above because we've been reading the gospel of John already. So Jesus is, is the word of God. He was with God, right? He is God. He's the one that comes from above. He's above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and he speaks in an earthly way. Now, he who comes from heaven is above all. Now, he who bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. I think John's not really talking about his testimony, but Jesus' own testimony about himself. John's saying he who receives Jesus' testimony will set this seal that God is true. That they believe their object of faith is in Jesus. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I love this passage. There's a lot of moving parts, right? Jesus is above all. Jesus is from God. Whoever receives his testimony, they can't receive it from just anything. It has to come from God himself. That the belief in Jesus brings eternal life. A life with God, a new life. But yet those who don't obey, who don't listen, who don't believe, the wrath of God remains. That can actually take us back, you know, on guard. For some of us, we've maybe never really heard that. We don't really understand that. But you have to understand that our default position with God is under his wrath. That's where we were born in. Because we were born as enemies of God. And God is just. And he must have a payment. There must be justice. Here's the reality, though. In the gospel, we understand it. That we were created to be with God. That he, he wanted us to have relationship with him. He created man and woman in his image that they would actually be, uh, you know, multiplying the earth and they would spread his fame and glory through their visible reflection. Yet, sin entered the world in the fall. Uh, our forefather Adam, right, he sinned and he brought all of us with him. And we've been categorically moved from, from con- reconciled, or not reconciled, but, but uh, in communion with God to being under his wrath. Because of sin. Death entered the world. This is not how God created it to be. And if you look at the world today and you think that this is how it's meant to be, it's not. Something's broken. Something went awry. And it started with us as his image bearers going our own way. That made us separated from him, his enemies. And God has to be God. He must judge. 
But God also is of love, of mercy. He's actually long-suffering. These are who he is. So in his, in his own way, he decided to make a way because he wanted to be reconciled back with his creation. So this is on God's own doing. Sometimes we don't like that because we don't like to lose control. You know, as Americans, we tend to think that we can control more than we actually can, right? But in God, God is actually the one in control. God made a way for us to receive new life through Jesus by sending Jesus to be our substitute. That in Jesus, he takes on the wrath of God. That whoever puts their faith in Jesus no longer are in the the default position of being under wrath, but now are sons of God that are now delivered and are part of the family. They've been given new life and forgiveness. But how does that happen? It happens through surrender. It happens as we give up our own lives and we put our faith, sit fully in our weight in the gospel. I um, grew up tubing, uh, you know, ski boats and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you can ski behind a boat, you can wakeboard behind a boat. Or like everybody does, they tube behind boats. Um, and so I remember growing up, my dad, no joke, and it's verifiable because we've done a lot of trips with other people, is an amazing boat driver, right? Now, I'm not going to say he's the best, and you're going to argue with me, that's fine. But he, he can throw anybody off a tube. I, I've seen it, I've experienced it, and no matter how hard I try to hang on, no matter what position I take on that tube, I am going to get buried in the water. Um, I have, I've tried, I mean, uh, I've, I've very hurt hands because of it, maybe, maybe I've broken bones, and I don't know, but I remember I've tried to hang on. Well, my sister invited her friend Vanessa out, uh, Vanessa had never been um, tubing with us. I remember she just got on the lake, we are up at Lake Orville, and she gets in, and uh, my dad's like, you want to go tubing? And we're like, dad, go easy on her, right? And she doesn't know anything about tubing, never been before. She goes and, you know, there's a few ways that you can go on the tube. You can lay on the tube and hold on and try to position your, your body weight so he doesn't throw you as well. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at that. Or the other position is ridiculous, really risky. You sit in the tube, okay? But if you sit in the tube, you have no control. Like, you know, like you're just on for the ride. And usually when you sit in the tube, you're like, I want something different, you know? And uh, you're ready to get wrecked. Vanessa, just I remember her, she just sat, she had this long black hair. She went and just kind of went, jumped, boom, landed in the tube. And we kind of, you know, you know, let the rope out, slack out, and we started going. And my dad was taking it easy, we could tell. He was taking it real easy with her. And as he was going, he, uh, he started seeing that, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't getting scared at all. So he, he started, you know, increasing the speed, doing a little more bumps, and all of a sudden, I can see my dad, that he was kind of getting a little uh, bothered by how happy she was behind. And he wasn't used to someone, not just, you know, he, when he wanted them to enjoy the ride, that was fun. But something in him kind of broke, and he decided, I'm going to throw this girl off this tube. And it's her first time. And you should, like, every time he, she'd hit a jump, like, her hair would just go, woof, woof. Then my dad <clears throat> spun around did a big loop. He'd set up something. He's master at this kind of stuff. He set up these huge waves, slowed down, got her right in the middle, 
spun her, had her, that are actually going so quickly, so she slowed down, she hit this enormous wave, she literally does a barrel, first time she's ever in a tube, I've never seen someone do a barrel and survive, she lands it and she's smiling, this girl has no clue the danger she's in, and we're sitting back there terrified for her, like, like going from laughter to like literally like crying, and like we're like, dad, I don't know, like, and he's like, oh, you know, I'm going to get her. <clears throat> My dad finally relented. He had to slow down the boat and let her back in. He never could throw her. Something about the way she just unknowingly sank herself right into that tube. She put her full weight in it, and it brought amazing security, security that we've never experienced. I think that's what faith does. <clears throat> faith is about putting your full weight into something. It's not choosing to sit in a chair ha- haphazardly. You know, if you saw someone try to take a seat in a chair and, you know, they were like, you know, holding on to it or <clears throat> holding on to something else, you'd say, there's something wrong with that chair, isn't there? You don't really have faith in it. I think sometimes that's the way we look with Jesus. We're holding on to other things. We're clinging on to something else because we don't, we're not ready to really put our full weight into Jesus and what he's done for us. But I can tell you, the life of faith is a life of surrender. It's the first surrender you do with Jesus is to sit in the chair. You may not be comfortable in that chair. and The, the quality of your faith <clears throat> really will reveal the quality of your seating. But it, it really doesn't change whether you have it or not. The fact that you're sitting is faith. You don't have to fully understand it completely. You don't have to come to it in, in the fullness of your own mind. But you have to sit fully surrendered. I had a um, mentor tell me a long time ago um, that when I pray, especially when I'm praying about something, to, to open my hand, that whatever it is, and sometimes I'd, I'd have a pencil or he would, you know, said, just hold something in your hand and ask God that that be like what th- that object would be, whatever, you know, whatever situation, whatever person, whatever situation. It usually had to do with someone, you know, like Danielle when I was dating her, you know, I was like, oh God, I, you know. Uh, when you're dating, it's always very emotional, right? And so I remember just holding out this pencil with whatever situation was in my life and it, as an act, as a, as a symbol of my heart of surrender. Saying, God, I'm, I'm willing to allow you, and funny, I'm willing to allow you to take this from my hand. Because in the end, whether our hand is open to God or tightly enclosed around that item, God's gonna get it from our hand. You can either give it up with an open hand, which is such a blessing. When God takes things from your hand when they're open, it's relieving. It's like this is, you're in God's will. You're in God's plan. But if you've ever been in a situation where your fist is around that item, all you're left with is a really tired and worn out hand. We can have two responses to surrender. We can either cling to it and lose it still, or we can open our hands and surrender 